Welcome to the Bentonville Beacon, where we bring you success stories from business leaders and owners about their triumphs and growth in the Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas community. You'll hear about how Bentonville has been the backdrop for incredible growth, not only for businesses and their employees, but in their personal lives as well. Tune in, subscribe, and enjoy hearing about Bentonville, where you get more of what you want and less of what you don't. Welcome back to the Bentonville Beacon Podcast. I'm your host, James Bell, and I'm very excited to drop this extra episode on you uh, today. You know, uh, we recently switched to season two of the podcast, which is uh, largely about smart mobility. So everything from bikes to drones, flying cars, air taxis, uh, the whole nine yards. Uh, season one, you may recall, was about the, uh, not too long ago, was about uh, Bentonville's incredible outdoor recreation industry. Today's episode looks more like season one, uh, but I did not want to miss this opportunity to learn from today's guest. And if you know anything about mountain, mountain biking, especially locally, you know the name Rich Drew. And, and so I'm thrilled to tell you that I have uh, the studio in the studio with me today, uh, Rich Drew. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very excited. I've been excited for a while about this. Awesome. Me too. Well, uh, just to tell you real quick, um, you know, Rich has his own YouTube channel that's dedicated to everything mountain biking, and that's in conjunction with uh, the Ride Series Mountain Biking Clinic. Uh, Rich, let's start with the easy question. What should the audience know about Rich True and how you found your passion for mountain biking? Uh, uh, pretty simple. I'm 44 years old. I'm a father, I'm a husband, and I'm a bike rider. Uh, I'm just a normal dude that happens to have a passion for riding bikes and was able to turn it into, I guess, a career for lack of a better term. Um, I started racing bikes when I was five. Two wheels has been omnipresent my entire life. And thankfully, I have a brother that's seven years older than me, and he was my two-wheeled hero, helped guide the way for me. And it's just interesting. I, I, I graduated from Arizona State University um, with a degree in small business management and sociology. And my, my career path after that um, really didn't take any of those things into account. But my brother and I started a business, and then I traveled for a long time in the automotive marketing space. And at one point, I found my way in Dallas, and I met an amazing young lady who very quickly turned into my wife. And um, so I spent a lot of time in Dallas. And you know, I was always riding bikes. I raced BMX at a young age. I raced motocross for a long time. And I'd ridden mountain bikes forever, but never really thought about racing a mountain bike. It just, mm -hmm. And then one day, late 2013, I decided I'm, I'm going to do it. I have a, a bike I got from my brother. And uh, I went to a race and it didn't work out so well. Um, I finished 13th. But I quickly realized two things. I needed a little more fitness. Uh, but I also realized my skill set from my life experience on two wheels seemed to be much better than everybody else. And if I got this fitness, I could probably do well. And so less than six months, I did my first pro cross-country race and did very well. And essentially, that is why we're sitting here today having this conversation. We'll get deeper into it, but I, I want to wait a little bit and answer those questions down the road. Yeah, man, that's great. Um, I'll share with you also, I drug my wife out of, out of uh, Bentonville. Sorry, Bentonville. No, I didn't. We're never leaving here. <laughs> I drug my wife out of uh, a Dallas as well. And oh, at the time okay. I was living in Memphis, yeah. uh, got her to move to Memphis and marry me. And uh, then go. we got her to move here, which was really uh, quite easy and her parents as well. And 
We love it. Um, well, good for a, you to get her parents to move here. It was easy to get her to move. Her parents, they're down in Houston. So it's, it's tough. I'm still going to try. Yeah. My wife's parents moved in with us, um, I guess, about two and a half years ago. We had a baby two years ago, oh. uh, and then they just moved into their own apartment a few months ago here. But I have to tell you that the cheat code is X, Y, no, uh, triangle, circle. I don't know how all that works anymore, <laughs> but uh, the cheat code to sleep yeah. as a new father uh, is uh, clearly it's to have your uh, mother-in-law and, and father-in-law yep. uh, with you because I've lost in two years, I bet, a whole three weeks of sleep. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I've heard that many times. Yeah. How did you end up in Bentonville, Arkansas? So actually, funny story. Um, what I was doing at the time when I first came here, I was in the automotive marketing space. I was a product trainer for the Ford Motor Company. And living in Dallas, working most of South Texas, my territory changed. And at the top of my territory was this crazy place called Bentonville, Arkansas. Hmm. And I thought, man, I, what the heck's in Bentonville? And I came up here for the first time and it was a long time ago. It was probably 13 years ago now. And there wasn't a whole lot happening around bikes, but there was enough. And I went out for a trail run. So I wasn't even riding mountain bikes full time at this point. And as I'm running, I'm seeing all these crazy wooden mountain bike features. And I'm just thinking to myself, wait a minute, I'm in Arkansas. Like, where is all this coming from? So that's the first time it popped up on my radar. And I would consistently come back four to six times a year. And then when I started racing mountain bikes, I would come back still the same amount of times. But at that point, a lot more had started to develop around the cycling infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So I'd see it. Well, social media was becoming much more present. And I was trying to leverage social media a little bit more at that point. And so I'd create content and a lot of people in this area would see that content and they would see me up here riding. And it was a, a bit of a facade that got created because they'd think, okay, this guy's from Dallas. He's coming here for three days periodically to just train on his mountain bike. Well, little did they know I was working at a Ford dealership. So <clears throat> I would let them believe what they wanted to believe. Mm -hmm. um, and as the visits grew, as time went on, I saw more and more what was happening here with cycling, but I also had a deeper understanding of who was driving it and how passionate they were about it. Sure. So hand in hand, the ride series was growing and it just, it got to a point where I thought it could potentially stand on its own, allow me to support my family by following that passion. And I just, one day I woke up and I had this vision of what would come if I just bet on the bike and I pitched it to my wife and brought her here and showed her around and sat down over an Onyx shake and the rest is history. That's great. Um, speaking of the ride series, how did that come about? And uh, what's the backstory? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Again, something that just very organically happened. Uh, as I said, within about six months, I did my first pro cross country race. And this was in Texas. Texas is a big state. There's a mm -hmm. lot of people that race mountain bikes there. And a lot of people were a bit perplexed at how I'd come in out of nowhere and ascended up the ranks so quickly. And there's a couple of factors involved. One is I was much larger than the majority of the people that I was racing. I've been in the gym my entire life, a lot of strength training background. I was big into CrossFit. So I looked different than most. Um, and so that was one thing that stood out, but my riding style was very different. So again, I come back to I've been riding bikes forever. I was really good riding a bike. I just wasn't fit. And fitness is pretty easy to get. If you have due diligence, it's out there. You just have to go mm -hmm. get it. So I got it and I started doing well. And one of the questions I was asked was, how did this happen? Like, can you help me? You obviously know some secret. And so the first thing I did was talk to my brother about it, who 
in concert with what I was doing in Texas, he was having success all over the country racing a different discipline called enduro. A little more gravity oriented, a little bit more what we were set up to do, what we wanted to do. And I said, dude, what do I do here? Everybody's asking for help. And the first thought was, okay, let's get certified, be coaches for some entity. And that's how we would make our impact. And we started looking at curriculum. And what was troubling was the curriculum was asking us to teach things that we didn't do on the bike. Hmm. And so we kind of took a step back and said, well, wait a minute, people are asking us because of the success we've had. Well, let's look at how did we have that success? And it was really simple. It's all basics. And so we wrote our curriculum based on the basic things that are done on a bike and a lot of our opinions, but what everything falls under two important elements, and that's physics and gravity. And so we're very particular about those two things and where our opinions fall. And so I think we were able to have decent success pretty quickly because we're both very passionate about what we do, but we also have a wealth of experience that we speak from. And that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And it just, it slowly grew in concert with me being a product trainer for the Ford Motor Company. And like I said, I just, I saw this glimpse and especially here when I saw what was happening with this place and you, you've said it, ski town, it's a ski town model and every ski town has a ski school. So I thought I'd like to bring that component for mountain biking and see if we could make it a go. And, you know, the goal was come here. We didn't have much of a plan, but I was confident in my ability. I was confident in what the community needed. And my thought process was, if I come here to just give to this community, just give, 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 everything will work out. And so, yeah, that's it's basically how it, it started. And it's just, it's been a slow build to this point. And that's a, a ready firing moment, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's It's remarkable how many real success stories start there where you're so passionate about something passionate about something that you know you'll figure it out you just have to get started um physics and gravity man that's uh i can't wait to talk about the basics <laughs> here in a moment i i've uh, learned a lot about gravity so far oh yeah and have not applied much of my uh, physics knowledge apparently <laughs> Um, you know, I didn't come from a BMX background. In fact, until recently, I haven't been on a bike in 30 plus years. Uh, so I feel like I need a ground school. Like I need somebody to teach me like I've never ridden a bike before yep. uh, because it's pretty much where I'm at. I mean, I, I can't remember what I did last week. How am I supposed to remember yeah. how to ride a bike, even though they say you never forget? Yep. Would I be a good customer for the ride series? And uh, should I do something else first? No, I think you would be a good customer. And that's something that we have been trying to, I think, get better at. And that's grow the scope of our product offerings. And when we first started it, we took for granted that most people had some semblance of what needed to happen. They were already vetted, so to speak. As the years have gone by, especially with COVID, the amount of new riders or riders that are coming back after many years those people, they need that ground school that you talked about. They need the basics broken down. And one of the biggest things is for you as a rider who's been out of the game for a long time, technology's completely different. And we need to be able to set you up to embrace that new technology so you have a better experience. But then those newer riders who are just now getting into it because of COVID or another reason, we have to not take for granted the things that are second nature to us. And so we constantly try to step outside ourselves and say, what would this person need? Simple things like shifting Mm -hmm. or maybe even clothing, best practices, 
before you even get on the bike. So yeah, we definitely offer those things. We have uh, an MTB 101, which is perfect for that. Um, it's a 90 minute session that goes over what is, is in the bike. Like what are we dealing with on a current mountain bike? We talk about that technology and then how best to set yourself up with clothing, helmet, safety gear, all those things. And then we go over some basics on body position and that sets you up for the next courses that we have. We have a 201 and a 301. And then we also have a jump session, which is becoming very popular. Very cool. Sounds like that's something I, exactly that I need. I had to tell you, you know, it sounds like you're making mountain biking accessible. And that's a thread that runs through a lot of things uh, in this community is, uh, you know, Bentonville has just been built on accessibility, 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 whether it's going to a world-class mountain biking, uh, mountain biking, how about a world-class uh, art museum for free? or having access to world-class mountain biking trails for free, uh, but from downtown. Yeah. And trails that are fun for everybody, as well as, you know, trails for everybody. Um, we'll talk more about that. Uh, you know, your YouTube, uh, YouTube channel uh, has more than 50,000 subscribers yes. and more than three and a half million views. That's pretty impressive. Sounds like it's working out uh, pretty well for you. It is, yeah. And, and when you break it down, we never intended to grow a large YouTube channel. Um, YouTube is a space that has just exploded over the last probably five years. Mm -hmm. And it's an avenue for a lot of people to make a career. That said, it's, it's a full-time job. Like it's a, it's a lot of work on the back end beyond just making the videos. And that was never my intention. I was in the right place at the right time. I had made some videos leading up to 2020. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, I met a, a gentleman named Brock Wagner who has a production company. And he basically said, look, dude, I think you could be great at YouTube. And I just thought, you know, I, I don't really have a whole lot of time. I don't invest a lot of time watching YouTube videos. But if you want to set a camera up, I'll stand in front of it and wave my hands around and talk. I can do that. And we made a few videos. And I think just the time was right. People were stuck inside. They were hungry for content. A lot of people were finding the mountain bike. So it was a good time to create that content. And I think the beauty of what we have done ever since then is we've made content that we want to make. We've made it on our terms. So I'm okay telling you the content we make is never driven by how many views can we get and how many subscribers can we get? Like 50,000. I, th I think it's great. I'm happy with it. There's people that have grown 10x that in the same time frame. Um, there's people that are nowhere near that in the same time frame. Success of our YouTube channel for me doesn't come from views or subscribers. It comes from the feedback, the comments, um, some of the relationships that we have built through that. And it's just, it's exciting because I've been able to try to stay true to what we wanted to do in the beginning. And that was make things that were positive, things that were educational, things that were entertaining and something that I would always be okay with my son watching. And that's been important. You know, it's funny because people now call me a YouTuber. I'm starting to get better at embracing it. But for the longest time, I felt like it had a negative connotation of sorts because there was a lot of people in that space that I felt pandered to the lowest common denominator simply to get views, to get subscribers and generate more income. And thankfully for us, we're not concerned with the ad revenue that YouTube creates. We're able to leverage that platform to get support from some amazing companies that see the value in what we're doing. And so that's just, that's the goal moving forward is keep doing that. Like provide value to everybody, provide value to the end user who's watching the video, 
but provide value to the bike company or the clothing company or anybody else who provides production funds to help make those possible. And I like that. Um, so I have watched a few of your videos and they're not just entertaining, but like you said, educational and they're interesting. They're worth watching. And I, I think you create a better audience that way. It's pointless to have a million person audience that doesn't actually care. I agree. Whatever you did was entertaining to them. That was it. And like you said, really catering to the lowest common denominator. So uh, confession time. So I bought my first mountain bike in October or I received my first mountain bike in October. And, and I bought a nice bike because I know I'm so hard headed that even if I don't get around to it for a bit, that I will ride it. Oh, yeah. Uh, it took me two years to quit pre-med. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, that's probably the only thing I've ever quit at in my life. Um, went over the bars in December. Yep. Couldn't sleep on my right side for uh, uh, two months. Then we had a really rainy spring and traveled a little the last couple of months, got busy into some stuff. Yep. Sounds like a bunch of excuses because really at the end of the day, it is. I could have found time to ride. Is that what I need to do? Just get out and do it already? You know, in some ways, yes. It's a common tale. Don't think you're alone in that. It happens over and over and over again. And it's kind of an interesting tale, I think, as to why it happens. And I think the biggest piece with this is the psychology behind it. Mm -hmm. And people come to us, they come to our events, and we start by telling them, the most important thing that they can get. I literally say to them, if somebody came in and said, you have 90 seconds left and you're losing this group, or if you had 90 seconds to speak to the entire mountain bike riding population, what would you say to them? And it's pretty simple. What I would tell them is your body position needs to be centered over the bike. If your body is not centered over the bike, nothing can work the way it's supposed to, which is very simple. But the challenge behind that is we're all human beings. And we have a fight or flight response. We have a fear mechanism. And when we're faced with fear, their instinct is to push back. And unfortunately, what people do is they get themselves in those situations very quickly where they're faced with fear and they push back, they get in a bad position. And the outcome is usually a broken collarbone or a concussion or some broken ribs. And what we're trying to do with the ride series is change that barometer. We're trying to get them to understand that you need to slow down. If you slow down and methodically try to make progress with an understanding of what needs to happen, you can make incredible gains. And one of my good friends here, Scott Fitzgerald, owns a company called Buddy Picks. Mm -hmm. And it's just a phenomenal program that, that trains young uh, riders. We had a conversation and he threw out this term to me that's stuck. It's radical incrementalism. And I absolutely have embraced it and tried to get that across to everybody that comes through our events. And I truly think that if you adopt this philosophy and try to make these minute gains every day or every time you ride, you can hold on to those and your brain will accept those. And it's a very challenging thing on a bike. The, the neural pathways in your brain are very developed when you're 16, 20, mm -hmm. 25, and you can't fight those. And you know, for me, one of the things is people talk about the fear mechanism, does that kick in for you? And it doesn't to an extent because I started riding bikes when I was five. I was jumping a bike consistently since I was six or seven. So those neural pathways developed with me propelling myself through the air on a projectile. That was essentially a normal thing. And I think too few people embrace that piece of it. Don't fight it, embrace it. Some of them, it's crazy. People have the ability to turn that mechanism off and just go for it. 
And I'm very challenged by that because I think that instinct is there for a reason. It's there to hopefully keep you alive, keep you out of the hospital. Uh, But also I think from a, a learning standpoint, when there's a lot of fear front of mind, it's almost impossible for actual learning to happen. So you need to manage how much fear is there. And I think that just comes back to the environment we provide. We don't use a trail. We use a big grass field. We bring in all our implements. And the idea is we want to remove all the impediments. We want you to just be able to focus on the technique. If you can focus on the technique, you can have time under task. You can be doing it right. And then you can go to the trail and potentially do it right. And so I think it's a long way to answer your question of, should I just go ride? You should but you should go ride doing things properly. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you mentioned fear and managing it and not necessarily turning it off, but managing it. And in that moment, that's exactly what happened. I do have this weird ability to just turn fear off. And in that moment, I was pumping out of a small hill and got into a berm, a small berm right immediately behind that. And I came out of that pump, if you will, a lot faster than I expected. Yes, you did. You and did into it right. that berm, <laughs> And I immediately grabbed my left brake. Yeah. Today, it's very clear to me where the right brake, uh, the, <laughs> where the front brake is. Yes. We'll talk more about that in a moment. <laughs> I've got a question about that. But, you know, I, I think you kind of spoke to it, keeping the uh, centered over uh, uh, the bike. If there's one thing a mountain biker needs yeah. to do, what is it? And what else uh, do it, they need to do to excel? I just think it starts with body position. Body position is really the most critical thing because the body position or the best body position is going to be situationally dependent. And I think it comes back again to physics and gravity. And there's an algorithm that could compute at any moment when you're riding the bike that will tell you where you need to be and you need to be close to it to have the best outcome. So I think for me, it's body position is imperative. And once you spend more time in a proper body position, you have a better idea of how well things can work. Then from there, it's a matter of not rushing and understanding that there's no secret sauce. Like it's simple. It's riding a bike. Like at the end of the day, it's riding a bike, but there's a lot of nuance to all of these things. And I think the slower you can get more comfortable with it and have an understanding of it, the more you will be able to progress as a writer. And it's a slow build. I just, I spend moments every day trying to preach to people, don't rush it. Like there's no substitute for experience. You need time. And to get frustrated that you're not going to Red Bull Rampage a year or two into the game, um, it's a bummer to me because riding bikes are fun. Like you're supposed to be having fun. And if you take your time to methodically better your skill set, the amount of fun you have is almost limitless. Cool. So what I'm hearing from you here is focus on the basics, focus on the process. Radical incrementalism um, is, I think, a great way to put it. And uh, if you do that, it'll be safer. Oh, yeah. But it'll be a more uh, enjoyable uh, experience. Yeah. In other words, put in the darn work and be disciplined yeah. about it. Well, and it's fun work. Yeah. Like that, that's the thing I come back to is it's, it's really fun work and you can balance it. Like you said, 80, 20, find a percentage on a ride, like 80% of your ride, have fun, but 20% of it, be cognitive enough to work on something, be it breaking body position, turning things like that. And you'd be shocked at almost unbeknownst to you, how much progression you're making in those sessions. 
Cool. Okay. Well, let's go back to breaking. She yeah. brought it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I've joked to people that I should probably just cut off my front brake and that it shouldn't exist and I'll just slide around everywhere and it'll be safer. Yep. But I know from uh, just watching a few of your videos and, and hearing from you that uh, perhaps I'm wrong on that and that I should be using the front brake a lot. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, of course. It's one of those things that um, a lot of people are frightened by the front brake. And it's because they've had a stimulus that causes that fright. It reinforces it. And I, I completely get it. So what we do at the ride series, first and foremost, is we provide an environment. So think of a, a rectangle of cones on a grass field, relatively safe. And then what we do is we give a very simplistic but thorough explanation using physics and gravity. So it comes back to, as a general statement, the front brake is more effective. Now, there are times when the rear brake will be but overarching, it's the front brake and it's simple physics. It's pushing the mass. It has way more leverage. So now what we tell people is when you're in a situation, your desire should be to be effective braking in that situation. So effective braking, again, situationally dependent. But what it comes down to is this. Our anecdotal evidence tells us that the majority of people, when they're applying brakes on their bike, they're doing it in a light switch manner. It's on off, on off. Mm -hmm. And what we try to do is get them to look at it in the context of a dimmer switch. So if you think dimmer switch, you can move it as quickly as you need to and as much as you need to. And I've emphasized need because what it comes down to is, as Einstein said, do what you need to do. Don't do any more. Don't do any less. And when you're applying brakes on a bike for whatever situation you're in, there is an amount of brake that needs to be applied. And it comes back to the manner in which you apply it. If your brakes are applied in a smooth manner, the delivery of braking power will be smooth. But whenever you apply brakes, you feel a force on your torso and that sends your torso forward. So simply stated, you apply the brake you feel you need and you modulate your torso to counter that. That's it. And so essentially our goal at the end of our braking drill at the ride series is to have people moving their body far less backwards than they have coming in and doing it in a much slower manner than they ever have. And so much so where people get frustrated, let the pendulum swing all the way over and basically put their body in slow motion. And then they realize, wow, that's what I needed to do. So what it comes back to is how you apply the brake is very important. And I think the more time that you can get comfortable with what that brake application is like, meaning you always have a finger on the brake. So we hold our index fingers up mm -hmm. and we say, we're looking for something. And this is everybody's cue to put your index finger on the brake. Every current bike um, above, let's call it $2,000, has brakes that can be modulated with one finger. And if that finger's always there, you're in a much better position to effectively apply that brake. And it takes time. And it's one of the things that I'm thinking about every time I ride. You ask a lot of people, they'll be like, nah, man, I don't really care much about the brake. I just hit the brakes and it takes care of itself. It's a lot of nuance to applying brake. And I think it's very important to take a little bit of time in your rides to think about it. And what's great is you have trails that you ride normally. You have braking zones that you're comfortable with. You can make these tiny little adjustments and get that feedback. You get that data. And it's not hard. You just got to think about it a little bit. Excellent. All right. One finger. Yes. One finger. Dimmer always. switch. Dimmer switch. Effective braking, situationally dependent. Yes. I'm going to remember those. Um, uh, let's talk wheelies. Okay. 
Looks like you're always doing them in your videos. Man, they look fun. Um, what's the secret to success with the wheelie? Well, I think I think we need to clarify. There, there's two things going on. There's a wheelie and then there's a manual. Yes. So I manual a lot in my videos. Now, I, I would categorize them or define them as this. A wheelie is done seated and there's movement with the pedals. A manual is dynamically throwing your hips back to get the bike on the rear wheel and then modulating your hips to keep it on the rear wheel for as long as you can. Hmm. So I will give you, in my opinion, the technique behind each of them. The wheelie, and this is something that when I was seven years old, my brother would basically put me up against the entire neighborhood in a wheelie contest. So I'm seven. I have this little tiny bike that had a coaster brake on it. And that's where I honed my ability to find the balance point. So in my world, the key to being effective at a wheelie is getting the bike up and finding the balance point. A lot of people pedal hard Mm -hmm. to keep the bike up. They use power. My goal is get the bike back, find the balance point. But here's the key. Once you find the balance point, you need to fix everything else. Meaning arms are straight, hip crease is, is fixed. Don't move things all around because then it makes it harder to deal with that movement. If you stay relaxed, keep your body in the same position, you slowly move the pedals to maintain the balance point. Nice. And the last key is that finger. That right finger is always on the brake here. If you're in the UK, it's the left, but here it's the right finger. And you're always able to modulate the brake. So if you go past that balance point, you breathe into the brake a little bit and you're fine. So this is something that it's simple. It's just not easy. It takes time. It takes some diligence. And I think if you put it in, in the right environment, find a grass field with a a gentle uphill slope, you're able to do it. Now, manuals, manuals are a little bit different. A manual, I think is a pretty advanced maneuver. It's a very dynamic and athletic maneuver. And my brother and I, for the longest time talked about, does it serve any purpose on the bike? So the last two years, my brother has been on a journey with manuals. Now, keep in mind, he's a a two-time big mountain enduro masters champion, very accomplished rider, could not do a manual. He learned it and he has a better appreciation for it. You have to be aggressive with a manual. You have to throw your hips back. Um, You have to be dynamic. And I think the biggest challenge for most people is they throw their hips back and they won't let them stay back. So you need to throw your mass back to get the front of the bike up and you need to try to keep your hips there to keep the bike up. So it's definitely a challenging thing. Uh, I've made a few videos on it that I think will go a little bit deeper into the explanation and help. But I can tell you for me, it's just fun. It's a fun thing to do. And it comes back to, it's a solid parlor trick. Like if, there, if I could say, what is one thing that catches people's attention? It's a manual. Like when you can manual, it's almost a calling card of, okay, you're a pretty good rider. When you can do it on the trail over undulations or through like mild turns, that's a whole nother level. And then you have some people who can do it landing on jumps. I'm not great at that. I've done it a few times, but that to me is the pinnacle. So there you go. That's super impressive. Um, I love watching videos of people jumping and uh, hitting drops, like drop the hammer. Oh yeah. Which looks terrifying. Obviously that's a long way uh, off for me. Uh, When you're making these jumps, I mean, you mentioned fear earlier. Does fear ever creep in? And and I'll add to it, uh, you know, have you ever looked at any jumps and thought, 
that's not happening. I'm not touching that. Yeah, I'll answer that first question with a resounding yes. I have, and I have zero issue with that. Call it age, wisdom, (laughs) um, being okay with who I am and knowing I have nothing to prove. And I wish more people would adopt that philosophy. The fear is there. I would argue it's not there as much as most people because of when I started. So to provide some context, I guess, uh, if you see somebody in a video that has a Red Bull helmet or a Monster helmet or they're at Rampage, that's, that's the, the outliers among outliers. Um, it, as far as percentages go, I'd say I'm probably up in the 95th percentile of riders in the world. But that top 5%, the, the chasm between my riding ability and theirs is just absolutely incredible. And how they're able to deer, deal with that fear I think is a level that I can't even begin to imagine. So it comes back to it being relative. I don't have it as much as most people, but I think in the moments I do have it, um, I try to shoot for a solid 80%. Uh, I have a friend named Kyle Warner, amazing rider. was a three-time North American Enduro Tour champion. He's got a YouTube channel with his fiance. It's called Kyle and April Ride MTB. And he said it once. He said, I want 80%. Like I want to have an 80% certainty that I'm going to be able to deal with something. And if I'm not quite there, I have no problem stepping back, maybe watching somebody else do it or saving it for another day. And I think that comes with time. Uh, unfortunately, it's come with some injuries. You know, I've learned the hard way to get to that percentage, but it's there, you deal with it. Um, and it's, it's part of your growth, your journey as a writer. Awesome. Uh, okay, let's switch topics a little bit and uh, talk about uh, diet. And, and uh, I'll make another confession. I did intermittent fasting for, yeah. gosh, over two years and it was working, but probably slipped off of it a few months ago. And uh, boy, I noticed immediately when I slipped off of it too, gained a few pounds back. One of the things I've heard you talk a good bit about is, is diet. And maybe yeah. it's counterintuitive that carb loading isn't necessarily the thing to do. Can you talk a bit about diet? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it simple because we could just, yeah. we could literally dovetail could a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, and I like to frame it around nutrition. And when people hear the word diet, it's triggering. And so mm-hmm. when I say nutrition, I, I, I hope that that makes it a little bit more accepting. And I try to keep it as simple as possible. I try to eat as many whole foods as I can, um, eat good foods, anything that's processed is not going to be as good for you. And it's easy. It's a good, better, best scenario. I always try to tell people that you have to do what you can with where you are in your environment. Like it's challenging. It's a very challenging thing this day and age to find things that are nutritious. But you talked about intermittent fasting, which can have amazing benefits, but you need to do some due diligence. You know, Mm -hmm. intermittent fasting, if you're already high stress from job and family, that could be a very bad thing for you. It's much different for women than it is for men. Um, Like people don't seem to think about that. They they don't understand that. A woman generally is designed to feed two people. So if you start restricting calories, that can get very challenging. And it's the same thing for, for males. If you start restricting calories too much, your body will go into this response where it's trying to hold on to everything it has because it thinks famine is coming. Um, you want to fuel yourself. And what I come back to is, you know, again, people would, would want to argue it, but carbohydrate consumption, I think in this country is shockingly high, mm-hmm. especially in the form of processed carbohydrates, which again, I'm an 80, 20 guy. Like I love food. I love donuts. I love sweets. I love pastries. I love pizza, all those things. 
And I'm a human being, I'm 44 years old. I don't make my living competing on a bike. So I'm going to eat some things I want. But at the same time, I'm also cognizant of I'm 44. My son's six. I want to ride with him when I'm 64. And I feel I can do that. And that nutrition is my conduit to getting there. So for me, it's simple. I want to try to eat as much whole food as I can and protein, fat, good fat, and then as much carbohydrate as I need. And so a lot of people think, oh, well, I'm riding. I need a lot of carbohydrate. Well, we could venture a guess at how much somebody actually needs or Mm -hmm. wants. And again, I've done a ton of research on this. Insulin, its job is to make things grow. And so if you're constantly eating, constantly snacking on carbohydrate, you constantly have your insulin levels raised. That's not a good thing. It's not under any circumstance. So for me, I try to keep the feeding window down. So eat later in the morning, finish eating earlier in the day, and generally push my carbohydrate back later in the day. So it's funny you bring that up. I've wanted for the longest time to make more videos on that. And I think next year, you're going to see much more of that. We're going to try to do a, we're not going to try, we're gonna. There's only do or do not. We're going to make videos about strength training and then nutrition. And again, my goal is to keep it as simple as possible. Educate, try to motivate, try to give people ways that can simplify what is commonly thought of to be just a daunting task. I can't wait for that. Switching to another short trail. Pro e-bike or against? I could not be more pro e-bike. E-bikes are amazing. If you ask me right now to pick one of my bikes in my fleet, I'd go e-bike. There's just, there's no reason not to. And it's shocking to me how many people, how many people just don't understand. And you have this question. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten into a conversation with people who are anti-e-bike. And I ask them, have you ever ridden one? And they say no. And so what I come back to is you cannot form an opinion until you have ridden one. And honestly, it's very challenging for me because e-bikes fall under archaic legislation Mm -hmm. and that's how many of them are kept out of certain areas. But again, there are challenges to an e-bike and e-bikes significantly heavier as a percentage than a quote unquote regular bike. And the thing will go 20 miles an hour pretty easily. And what we're seeing is a lot of newer, less skilled riders find their way on e-bikes just because there's more access. The e-bike isn't the problem. Lack of understanding, I think, and baseline skill is the problem. So I think that we can, as a community, remedy that. We can give people some best practices. We can give them a little bit of skill training and then allow them to have an amazing time on the bike. And you know, people talk about, oh, it's cheating or it's not much of a workout. I can tell you right now, I have data. <laughs> like I have numbers to show it's as much, if not more, of a workout. You're pedaling really hard. Um, you're moving a heavier bike around. So it's like you're in the gym. You're just doing it three times versus one. There's just, there's no downside. And especially a place like Northwest Arkansas, we have so much trail. It's hard to see it all. Yeah. When you're on an e-bike, it allows you to see so much more of it. So for me and my role as an ambassador here, and if I was tasked to show you the best Oz Trails experience, I'd want to do it on e-bikes because we could see more. We could cover more ground and you could get a better understanding of how amazing this place and the trails are. Yeah. Um, Well, for somebody just getting started, uh, what are the most fun trails in Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas? And in particular, where I can learn the most about myself and my bike and riding. 
That's a really, really tough question because there's so much right. to choose from. Yeah. I mean, I, I could go with the tried and true staple of all American. It emanates from Lawrence Plaza. It emanates from mm-hmm. downtown. It's the gateway to almost 200 miles of some of the best trail, the most diverse trail in the country. And I think now the way All-American is laid out for the first probably five miles, it's very aspirational. So it's a great place to experience a little bit of everything almost that you would get on the bike. And what's awesome is there's spurs all over that to take you to trails that are a little bit more demanding uh, from a speed standpoint, from a technical terrain standpoint, all of those things. Another one is Kohler. Um, Kohler, I call it the gem of Bentonville. Again, so many trails, so easily accessed. Uh, and you have an airship coffee right in the middle. Right. So uh, it's just, it's a win-win all the way around. So I think those two spots definitely are great. And I think that's where you see the majority of people. Yeah, and for our audience that, isn't familiar with Bentonville, when Rich says an airship right in the middle, he really means you can't get to that coffee shop except by trail. It's pretty awesome. What are your favorite trails around here? And I'll add to that, if you could only pick one trail, what would it be and why? Okay. My favorite trails right now are Hand Cut Hollow. So it is just east of Slaughter Pen, phase Mm -hmm. one, relatively new. And I describe it as very old school. So I'm sure you're familiar with Gary Vernon. Um, Mm -hmm. Gary Vernon, they call him the Wizard of Oz. Gary, just an incredible dude. Uh, One of the people that he's been a driving force in sharing the passion of Tom and Stuart Walton. And he has been somebody who's been able to assemble a team and just get so much stuff done. He's got an incredible vision. And man, that guy's an incredible rider. Like he rides really, really well. And I think that's part of the reason why we have so many great trails, but he's an older dude like me. You know, he's in his early fifties. He grew up racing BMX. He grew up riding mountain bikes back when there were no groomed trails. So those resonate with him and hand cut hollow has a lot more of that feel. It's a good balance where there's some flow, but it's a little bit narrower. It's a little bit chunkier. And for me, it harkens back to the late eighties when I got my first mountain bike and it's an opportunity to just go ride there. There's not a lot of ways to go. You can just settle in, you can ride, it's not as trafficked, but right in the center is a hub with some gravity trails, so you can also get that fix. So you can pretty much get whatever you want in that area, and you can get some solid mileage, you can climb a little bit, relatively speaking. So yeah, that, that is my favorite. And man, as far as, you know, one trail to ride, this is a very selfish answer, but for me, it would be All-American. And the reason it would be All-American is because I think every time I ride, I run into somebody, I get to interact with so many different people. And it's literally one of my favorite things to do. You know, from a fitness standpoint, I'm nowhere near what I was three or four years ago. And a lot of it is because it's just challenging to go ride and go train. And it seems like anytime I set out to go do a, a training ride, so to speak, I run across somebody. And I always smile and I always engage and I always spend as much time as I can with those people because what I come back to is that's the reason I'm here. You yeah. Know, at the end of the day, that's that's what I'm here to do. And it's just, it's really cool for me to roll up to somebody looking at a, a map, 
trying to figure out where to go. And I say, Hey, you know, do you need any help? You know, I can help guide you. And they're looking at it and they turn around and they go, wait a minute, I know your voice. Wait a minute, you're Rich Drew. And it's still, it's just crazy that that happens. But to be able to spend 10 minutes directing them where to go and make an impact, hopefully on their experience. Yeah, that means a lot to me. That's something that I take very, very seriously. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people talk about that, about people in Bentonville in general. Yes. That, you know, they'll they'll take you from, you know, if, if you're at a trail at Slaughter Pen that's closed or whatever, or you want to check out Kohler and you don't yep. know how to get there, they'll take the time to take you there, right? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, they, that, you know, in Bentonville, we kind of go out of our way to help people have a great time. And uh, I found that to be true from the first day I was on the ground here and, yeah. and love that aspect of our community. You could almost argue that it's a paradigm shift mm-hmm. from any other riding community. And that's not to disparage any sure. other riding community, but the amount of people who come here from other meccas of riding. And one of the first things they say to me is, dude, everybody's so nice here. It's unbelievable. And I think there's a couple of key factors there. For one, we're in the infancy. Mm -hmm. Like we're still infants when it comes to this. This has not been around a long time. And I think because it's so new, people are still very excited. But I also think people like Gary, people like Tom and Stuart Walton, they emanate this positivity and they put people in place to promote this environment of positivity, of welcomeness. And that transcends all the way down. And it's amazing. Everybody has bought into it. And it's when you have everybody's buy-in, it's just, it's really easy for people who come in from out of town to experience that. And it's, it's real. It's not fake. It's real. And that quickly resonates with those people. And I think that, again, just adds to a way better experience. It does. I, I'm really excited. In a few weeks, I'll have Gary on the show. And we're going to talk about the economic impact uh, to yeah. Northwest Arkansas and where it was and, and, and to Bentonville and, and, you know, where things were yeah. 13, 15 years ago. And and where they are now and where they're going, you know, we have something like 500 miles across a couple of counties. It's it's mind-boggling for me to think about. Um, and we're building at this unbelievable clip at one to two, maybe three miles a week. Um, you know, uh, one of the places I, I used to live built 30 miles of, of hard path yeah. over a period of time. And that was exciting. And I'm like, wow, that's 10 weeks of... Yeah. Uh, single track here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's mind boggling to think about it. Uh, add to that, you know, the uh, people and as you said, the people and businesses here in Bentonville have really just embraced mountain biking. Um, we're home to the world's largest company. There's 1400 plus vendors of that company here across a couple of counties in close proximity Two other Fortune 500 sitting on our doorstep. And yet we have this really vibrant vibrant uh, innovation economy. And like most every other place, the vast majority of our businesses are small businesses. Um, But as a walk around town, and you mentioned it earlier, what I see is a ski town. Yeah. Except we don't have uh, ski racks on our cars. There's bike racks on every car. You know, my goodness, I I saw a bike rack on a a police SUV the other day. Yeah, you know? and they're very expensive. They're yeah. one up. They're the best bike racks you can get almost. So yeah, Absolutely. it's crazy. Uh, you know, it's no wonder Specialized recently announced, I guess it's their third experience store yeah. is going to be here uh, in Bentonville that uh, Strider has its only storefront in the world uh, on our square uh, that Rafa came here to build its mountain biking 
uh, apparel line that uh, Allied Cycle Works relocated here to you know build the only uh, U.S. carbon fiber made road and gravel bikes, but also now is extending that to a mountain biking beautiful line mountain bike. Yeah. So how else? How should cycling companies? Seems like an easy question almost now that I'm thinking about it. Um, how should the leaders of cycling companies be thinking about having some sort of presence in Bentonville to take advantage of what's happening here? Yeah, I, I think the answer is within the question. It's first have a presence. And I can tell you from my experience, I've gotten to talk with a lot of people in the industry. And I would say there's very few that aren't doing what they can to have some sort of a presence. It's a very interesting thing that there's still some people, some companies that don't quite get it. Um, one of them, I'll give you a prime example, Crank Brothers. Crank Brothers is a company that's been around for a long time. They make pedals. They make shoes. Very, very established company. And we were at the Sedona Mountain Bike Festival earlier this year. And uh, Sebastian Salvant is one of their marketing managers. And I had a long conversation with him. And as I do as many times as possible, I use the phrase mountain bike capital of the world. And he laughed and he said, come on, man. And this is a guy that travels all over the world to ride mountain bikes and represent Crank Brothers. So he's got a pretty good subset of where he's been. And they were coming here for the Bentonville Bike Fest. And what I told him was, look, man, when you come, I'm going to show you why that moniker exists and why I would stand up in front of any forum and debate why it is indeed the mountain bike capital of the world. And I was excited for him and his team to come out. And we took him around and we showed them this place, how it should be seen. And halfway through, he said, I, I get it, man. I get it now. And he shared that with his team um, back at their home office. And that's what's happening is people are coming here. They're having the experience and then they're relaying it to everybody else in their company. And that's the thing is you can see all these videos, you can listen to people, but until you come here, it's really hard for these people to grasp it because it's almost unbelievable. These are people that have been all over the world. And their thought is I've been all over the world. I've been to the true meccas of mountain biking, but when they come here, they get a deeper understanding of their scope is narrow. They, they just can't help but look at it through their lens. And when you come here, you realize the vast majority of mountain bike riders, they don't want to ride mountains. They want to ride trails that are accessible, that aren't dangerous, but that mm -hmm. are exciting for them and their level. They want to do it in the vicinity of amenities that are world-class and abundant. And nowhere in the world does it like this place. And now you're starting to see specialized. It's no surprise. I mean, that was inevitable. Specialized, one of the three largest bike companies in the world, you could argue from a marketing standpoint and an impact standpoint, they're very much on the forefront. And I think quickly they understood the impact that this place could have. And they got in, they got in almost on the ground floor. And, you know, Allied, Allied, just such an amazing company, such an incredible product. And my hope is that they're on the forefront of this manufacturing boom, potentially. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not very well steeped in everything involved with manufacturing for a company like that. But I know that there's a lot of incentive here and there's a lot of drive to bring these companies here and actually have them manufacture something somehow. Yes. But at the very least, it's have a presence. Even if it's just have an office with one or two people and do something here. 
I think over the next three to five years, you're going to see more and more companies come in and try to have that presence and leverage it as much as they can. And, you know, I think when I've had the opportunity to have conversations with those business leaders, all I've said to them is do something that makes an impact. Like if you come in and your efforts are to make a positive impact on the community, I think everything else will take care of itself because people here can see through that. Like there, there's a sub, this mindset out there of, oh, there's a bunch of Walton money. I'm going to come in and grab it. That is not the case. And there's a lot of people in place to vet that. And I'm glad because yeah. attrition is something that will take its toll on a lot of people who are not here for pure reason. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, you know, let's take it a little bit further. Bentonville in Northwest Arkansas represents this combination of businesses and the outdoors that I would say is really unsurpassed anywhere in the country, maybe the world. You know, but at, at a minimum, if you're in the middle of the country and want rugged mountains and steep cliffs and uh, pristine wilderness, big, beautiful lakes and rivers, the world, uh, the uh, nation's first national river, this is it. Between the Appalachians and the Rockies, this yeah. is the only place where you get that. Yeah. Um, but then you throw in our art scene, or I'll call it our world-class art scene, our culture, yeah. uh, culinary, even our growing nightlife scene. And man, this place is special. Yeah, it's crazy that so many people don't think of it in that context. They think, okay, you guys have great mountain bike trails, but mm -hmm. when you explain to them, no, Walmart's here. The vendor yeah. community's here. You have high-level people that come from major cities. Those people can't exist without those amenities that they're used to. There's not all of them, of course, but there is enough to make an impact. And I think that we're just speaking more to why it's such an amazing place and why we could argue that it is indeed the mountain bike capital of the world. And it's only growing. It's only getting better. With, with every couple of months, you have more small businesses opening. We have a better feel for what's needed here for all of these tourists coming in, for all these people visiting. We know what they want and we can just yeah. we keep giving it to them. Yeah, exactly. You know, you said something that just triggered the thought. It, you know, really over the last 15 years, this effort toward place building and uh, focusing on quality of life and building the trails and art scene and, and so on here has happened. Um, and one thing that I would argue is perhaps different than a lot of other places is um, it's not just because we want to do it. It's an imperative that we do it. Look, Walmart is a public company. Um, they're building a beautiful, brand new, one plus billion dollar campus. But if you think about the value of that to their bottom line yeah. or to their top line revenue, right? Uh, it's nothing. Yeah. They could pick up and leave anytime they want. J.B. Hunt next door could do the same. Tyson could do the same. That would mean the whole vendor community picks up and leaves too. And so I say it's an imperative yeah. uh, that we continue doing this. We can't not do it. And so for anybody who's thinking about whether they should have a presence here, first of all, just in what they've heard so far yeah. is enough to say you should have a presence here. But to think about this will continue forward into the future because it absolutely has to or we don't exist is, you know, even more reason for folks to do it. Um, oh, yeah. You know, specialized, like you said, really, we're, we're in the, we've written the Ford. We're starting chapter one. Yep. 
they're on the ground. They're literally on they're the ground floor. On the ground floor of an incredible building. And it's <laughs> yes. funny when I tell people about the ledger yeah. and how you can ride up to the floor you want to go to. Again, people, they're just dumbfounded. They just say, yeah. wait a minute, what? Like, why would you do that? And the simple why response not? is, why not? Why yeah. not? Because that's how things happen here. And again, it's a paradigm shift. It really is. And it's hard sometimes for people to reconcile in their mind what's happening. And you have a couple people that are really spearheading it that, you know, they, they got a few dollars to spend yeah, um, and they want to see it through and they're present. It's not like they're these yeah. mythical creatures or characters that are just dropping money out of the sky. No, they're, they're always around. The whole family is around and they are, they work so hard to better this community. And I can tell you right now, that was one of the main motivators for us when we came here was the understanding of what they do. Like mm -hmm. they actually are doing the work mentally and physically. And that's inspiring when, when somebody at it that is. level with that much wealth tries that hard to use it to better a community at a, such a large scale. It is. And I think it's hard for, you know, as you said earlier, a couple of times, it's hard for people to understand unless they're here. So I do encourage people, if you haven't been to Bentonville, come check it out. You know, the worst that happens is you find a place with friendly people that you go, wow, I didn't know this could exist. Uh, that's the worst that could happen. Oh, yeah. Gee, that's, that sounds yeah. awful, right? Yeah. But uh, what you'll probably find out is that um, you wish you packed an extra bag because you're going to send for your things. Yeah. Um, and, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek. but <laughs> It I, happens. It, it happens, happens so much. All the time. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what's next for you? What's next for the ride series? Uh, you know, the ride series, we're at a very, I think, critical juncture in the growth of the company. We were established in 2015. And, and this year, we actually hired our first full-time employee, a wow. um, young man named Mason, who the vetting process for him was the better part of nine months. And we have this this moniker with the ride series, and it's the best upgrade to any bike is a better rider. And yeah. I, I love that. But lately I've been thinking that we might transition it to, it's all about the experience. And it's a very multifaceted saying for us because it's about the experience. It's about the customer experience. And we recently invested a large amount of money in infrastructure. So when you show up to one of our events, the, the hospitality area, if you will, is second to none, in my opinion, in our realm you look at it and you go, wow, like this is legit. And my hope is that that sets a precedent for the experience that you're going to have. Client experience is critical. And the other piece of that is we leverage our experience. I've been on a bike for a long, long time. I've lived a lot on a bike on two wheels. I've been in so many different situations with so many different people that it gives me all of this ammunition to give you a better experience. But at the same time, I was a product trainer for the Ford Motor Company for 10 years. And my ability to deliver a message was honed in that position yeah. in a lot of different dealerships with a lot of different audiences. In addition to that, the time I've spent in the gym, like I've lived a lot of life in my 44 years and I use all of those experiences to provide customers with an incredible experience. And so for us to try to duplicate that or scale our business, my first thought is I need somebody who has a similar background to me. And it's just, it's really hard to find. And thankfully with Mason, 
Um, he's a pro level bicycle and motorcycle rider. Like he's grown up his entire life racing on two wheels and he rides really, really well. And he has an understanding of what it takes to do what he does. But at the same time, he's 22. So he doesn't have those life experiences and we're leveraging or we're betting that we're going to try to give him those life experiences. And so he's on a three-year path to by osmosis, absorb as much as he can from me in how I deliver the message. It's not deliver it the way I do. I want Mm -hmm. you to deliver it in your words. You know how to ride really well. You need to explain that to people, but see how I do it. Try to absorb it. And our goal is, you know, we obviously, we want to grow the scope of the business. We want to get it out to more people. We want to impact more people. But one of the things that's most important to me, um, and I think it ties in with this community is we're a small business, but we want to provide a platform for people like Mason, other people. We have our eyes on some other people that we want to provide a platform to have a true career, to have a career that they could absolutely embrace and grow into for a long time. People are going to be riding bikes forever. People are going to need skills instruction for a Mm -hmm. long, long time. And there's a lot of options and it's a decent amount of money that you're going to invest. We want to make sure that you, you get an incredible value in that investment. So what we're trying to do is continue to grow the product, continue to try to offer an amazing value to people the best way we can. We have some partners that we're talking to about hopefully some long-term engagement to make that a better experience. So that is the goal is keep doing what we're doing, keep slowly growing it, build the scope of the business so we can, we can get more people out there and provide more of a platform. YouTube is similar. You know, We're happy with what we've done on YouTube. Um, recently, we added the ride series to it. So it's Rich cool. Drew, the ride series. The plan is at some point, Rich Drew is going to fall away and it's just going to be the ride series. My hope is that you know, Mason has become more present. We have some other people that we want to try to bring in. We, again, I want to try to provide a platform for those people to make an impact. Um, I'm not for everybody. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I can be a little passionate at times and it doesn't resonate with everybody. So if we can find a way to bring other people on, a, a truly diverse group of people and reach more people, I think that uh, I will, I'll be happy. So... Yeah, that's the goal. We're going to travel a little bit more. We just got back from trips to Minnesota and Wisconsin. A couple ride series clinics up there that were incredible. And in between, we went to visit Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Oh, yes. Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Minnesota. It's (laughs) north. It's about three hours north of the Twin Cities. Oh, wow. Really cool town. We went to ride a trail system called Tioga. So we engaged, visit Grand Rapids, uh, amazing woman named Meg runs that whole program. And we told her, hey, we'd like to come up, create some content and showcase the area and not just the trails, but uh, all the other amenities similar to what we do here. And so we did that. It was great. We're going to continue to do that. And we're going to make a trip to Colorado here soon. We're going to do some cool things. There's a company called SRAM, uh, big Mm -hmm. bike company. Uh, we're going to go do some training for their staff at the Colorado Springs office. And then Sarah, Dexter, and I are just going to go cruise around for a week and nice. live the vamping life. So I'm not, I'm not much of a camper, but we can sleep in our van. So we'll probably do that for a couple of days, get a hotel and just yeah, cruise around. We have some more clinics coming up. Um, a few different cities. We're going to go back to Minneapolis and Wisconsin because they were so successful. But September 10th and 11th, we'll be back here in Bentonville. Cool. 
And then mid-October, I think it's the 14th, 15th, we'll have another event here in Bentonville. And then we make our way out to the West Coast, enjoy some of that great weather, hit Southern California and Phoenix and potentially Florida in December. Florida in December, that's not bad. No. Um, Although I have been to Orlando in December and it was 30 degrees once. (laughs) I would say that's an outlier. I uh, hope. (laughs) I really hope. And it was still humid somehow. I, I don't know. How do people find you in the ride series and, and yeah. connect with you? Uh, I think the simple way, Instagram is a great one. We put mm-hmm. a lot of effort into Instagram. So from a social media perspective, I think for me, that's the one that's probably the most important because I feel like I can connect with the most amount of people. So it's at the Rich Drew, at the Ride Series is our Ride Series account. And then you can just go to the website, the Ride Series, mtb.com. Uh, if anybody has specific questions, you can send them to the boss. That's my wife, Sarah. It's just info at the ride series, mtb.com. So questions in regards to, we do a lot of private coaching. We do a lot of curated events here. And then of course, uh, small group sessions. We've done some corporate sessions. So small companies have come in, um, multi-day packages where almost everything is included. And it's a pretty amazing experience. Awesome. Uh, what should I have asked you that I did not ask? Oh man, um, I think I think you got it all. Yeah, some great questions. I think there's a couple more hiding that are ready. That oh yeah, there's one. I'm ready. You. Yeah. Oh, awesome. What's the most important that you've learned this year? That that that's one patience. Um, patience has been really it's been really difficult for me. Um, I've had this intent versus perception challenge, I will call it, for many, many years of my life because I'm a very passionate person and I come off very aggressive and some people, they just don't, they don't take it well. Uh, My message is perceived in a much different way. So I've learned to try to dull that a little bit more, but I think the patience piece was missing. And what I found is it's made me a, a much better father and husband And those are the two most important things in my world, but it's made me a much better coach because now I'm able to really reflect in the moment with somebody who's not quite understanding what I'm saying. And it's very important that in that environment, we look inward. It's, it's not the student's fault that they're not understanding the message. It's, it's me. It's my responsibility to get the message across to them. So Becoming a more patient individual has allowed me more time to figure out the best way to get that message to those people. And it's something I'm really proud of because it's taken me 42 plus years to make that happen. So, Well, I, I can tell you this is a uh, struggle for me. And I, I would say the exact same struggle is, is uh, yeah, intent versus percep- perception. I had not thought about it in that way before. Um, I characterize myself uh, sometimes when I am patient as impatiently patient. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, I'm right there with you. Maybe I should just, I I don't have a tattoo, but maybe that's what the tattoo should be. (laughs) Yeah. You could put it on on my hand. Yeah. Patience. That young one will teach you patience. Trust me. You know, and he really has, for some reason, I find it super easy with him to be patient and it's, it's, and you know, maybe some of that goes back to childhood and thinking about how I might do things different or whatever. But yeah, yeah, uh, dad, if you're listening, sorry, I said that. I didn't mean it that way. You know, it's just, 
yeah, somehow I find it easy with him and maybe I need to put on that same hat with other folks. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I think if you can hone it in that aspect, then you have a pretty good chance, but you need to... It's hard. Well, it is. And it only gets more challenging as they get older. The first two years of my son's life, I was traveling a lot. And so that fell on my wife. And now I've really tried to be a student of parenting. And I've tried to do things very differently than my parents did because it's just a different time. Yeah. It's not that what they did was bad. Right. It was just a different time. And I think we have a better understanding of the psychology behind it. And it's amazing that things my wife has asked me to do that at, at first hearing them thought, you got to be kidding me. And I put them into practice and it's just, it's amazing. And I've gotten, the, the relationship with my son is incredible right now. Like he just, at six, a little over six years old, he's just this amazing little human being that I love to be around. Like I love spending time with him and conversing with him. And I'm excited to go to Colorado and take him fishing and just hang out with him and just talk about life. It's just, it's really cool. And I think being patient enough to just live in the moment Whatever the outcome is, that I'm excited about that. Boy, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Joseph's two, or he's 25 months and four yeah. days old. So uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's such a great age. Uh, I don't think it's better. To a little more of that. Yeah. So, okay, one last question. Yes. Tell me a story. Uh, <laughs> Ed, we'll call this a hashtag because Bentonville story, something that yeah. perhaps could only happen to here or is unique here. I mean, uh, uh, you can tell a story or a moment. The moment I cite more, most often because it's quick is uh, Bentonville's the only place I've ever seen a bike detour sign. That's hashtag because Bentonville. Very much. Yeah, there, I think there's a lot of them. Um, one that I think stands out to me, um, somebody pretty important texted me and said, hey, Ken Lewisberg and his family are coming to town. I need you to show them a good time. And I said, heck yeah, I can do that. No problem. Who is Ken Lewisberg? And it turns out Ken's the CEO of SRAM. Oh, wow. And so pretty daunting, you know, yeah. that's, that's a big company. And I meet Ken, I meet his family, just awesome. Like just incredible people. And we go on a ride. I got to show them the town. We go out on a, like a two and a half hour ride. And there was this moment where we're going all over. We're probably 90 minutes in and Ken's just shaking his head. You know, a guy that's been everywhere riding bikes and he just can't believe it. Well, we come to this spot on all American and as you ride up, there's a couple of young kids there and they're talking about how big they're sending in on these jumps. And I roll up, I'm like, hey, what's up, kids? And they're like, oh, hey, man, what's happening? And then the kids, one of these kids stops and he looks at me and he locks eyes with me. And then his dad's next to him and he turns his head, but he keeps his eyes right on uh -huh. mine. And he says, dad, is that who I think it is? And his dad whispers to him, well, why don't you ask him? And he lo he's looking at me and he goes, are you Rich Drew? And I said, yeah, I am. What's your name? Uh, and he said, I'm Solomon. And we had this conversation with his dad and his dad said, you know, COVID hit. And I'm a single dad, you know, I have him and his brother. I don't know what, the, I don't know what we're going to do. And just all of a sudden on our radar, mount, radar mountain bikes popped up. And so I went to YouTube to try to figure out how do I do this? How do I get into this? And he said, man, I found your videos. And he said, it's been incredible how much you've helped guide us through this mountain bike journey. And then, well, we had to make the pilgrimage to Bentonville. So wow. he said, we're here um, because of your videos. So thank you so much. And it was crazy because in that moment, what I said to him was, you know, all I did was highlight what so many amazing people have poured into. The amount of people that have put effort into making this place what it is, to be able to showcase that and have people like him and his kids see it and come here, mm -hmm. that's just, that's, it's a true honor. It's a true, it's a responsibility that 
I relish. But then to do that with the CEO of one of the largest bike companies there, and he got a kick out of it. He thought it was cool. So yeah, I don't know of many more because Bentonville moments than that. I mean, it was just, it was cool. And there's a lot of them, but that was a great one. That's one that stands out a lot. That one gave me a little goosebumps. I like that. All right. (laughs) That's awesome. Rich, thanks so much for spending uh, time with me and with our audience today. I mean, this was awesome. Uh, I love it. I I can't wait to listen to this episode. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for sharing your uh, passion for mountain biking. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely. All I can ask for anybody who's listening and watching is make a visit. Um, Reach out. We'd love to show you around. Uh, it's, It's really... It's an incredible place. Words don't do it justice. That's right. You need to experience it. And I would love for you to experience it through my eyes uh, because I have a really solid feel for what needs to happen. And it's just, it's a great place. It's only getting better. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you three years from now so we can talk about everything that's transpired in that time frame. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, uh, thanks to the Bentonville Beacon audience. Appreciate y'all taking the time today uh, to spend time with uh, me and with Rich. Uh, If you like what you heard, come back for more episodes to learn more about Bentonville and our businesses and leaders and what's happening here and about Northwest Arkansas, which is really a place where you can get more of what you want, less of what you don't. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player if that's where you're listening and go to BentonvilleEconomicDevelopment.com to learn more and to find more episodes. Thanks. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Bentonville Beacon Podcast. We hope to see you next week.